Welcome and thanks for tuning in to the Restoration Foursquare Church audio podcast. Stay tuned for today's sermon. Enjoy and God bless. Well, as we were nearing the completion of our last series, series we did on Ephesians, the journey of a Jesus follower, I began to seek the Lord for what he wanted me to speak on starting with today's message. And as I sought God for a sense of direction, I felt stirred in two areas. A stir to, to share from two, two different perspectives, two different thoughts. The first was to do a mini-series on famous women of the Bible. And the second was address the ongoing divide that's sweeping across America. A divide that is being fueled primarily by political partisanship and racial unrest. Not really knowing what direction to go in, I sat down with my Bible and I did something that I seldom, if ever, do. I don't roll like this. <laughs> and that is, start reading wherever my Bible fell open to as if the Lord himself had directed me to that particular passage of Scripture. That is highly unusual because I am much more organized than that. But when I sat down and just opened my Bible, my Bible fell open to Numbers chapter 27. So if you will, turn that with me this morning. It is the fourth book in the Old Testament. Or if you want to just follow along with me, the scripture will be on the wall behind me. Numbers chapter 27, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, one day a petition was presented by the daughters of Zelophehad, those daughters being Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Terzah. Their father, Zelophehad, was a descendant of Hepher, a son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, who was the son of Joseph. These women stood before Moses, before Eleazar the priest, before the tribal leaders, and before the entire community at the entrance of the tabernacle. And they said, our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers who rebelled against the Lord. But he died, or he died because of his own sin. But he had no sons. Why should the name of our father disappear from his clan just because he had no sons? Give us property along with the rest of our relatives. So Moses brought their case before the Lord. 
And the Lord replied to Moses, the claim of the daughters of Zelophehad is legitimate. You must give them a grant of land along with their father's relatives, assign them the property that would have been given to their father. Amen. You know, as I read these verses, I saw the two things that I felt God wanted me to speak about kind of wrapped up in this one passage of scripture. So today I'm starting a series entitled Famous Women of the Bible with a message, Who Are You? Who are you? Let's start with the series title. Most of you have probably never heard of these women. And you, so you're probably thinking, how can someone be famous, Pastor, if I've never heard of them? I thought I was talking about famous women of the Bible. And I get it. Because the word famous means to be much talked about. It means to be widely known or to be renowned. That definition to most of you does not fit these daughters of Zelophehad. But the word famous also means to be well known about by a lot or a particular group of people, especially in a particular place. These daughters were well known by all of Israel because they challenged the law of the land and they saw it change because of their petition. In this series, and it's going to be two, three messages, I don't know how many, I want to use the story of the women who changed history. Changed history. And my hopes are that we will all be impacted by what we learn from these women, regardless of the side you find yourself on racially or politically. We may not come to understand why America appears to have taken a step back into time as far as racial issues are concerned, but we can seek to discover what we, the church, can do to help bring about true racial and political reconciliation, and I believe we can do it. I believe we can do it. But who are you? Who are you? By that I mean, what is it that you, that you use primarily to identify yourself? And I'm not talking about what you say about you, but I'm talking about what your actions says about you. What we do, church, provides a much more accurate description of our identity than what we say. Who are you? Knowing the answer to that question is so important because if you don't know who you are, other people will tell you who you are to be. If you don't know who you are, other people will define you for you. Right. Yep. That's good. 
your identity, how you see yourself will ultimately determine how you perceive what is happening in America. I'm going to say that again. How you see yourself, whatever you relate to, strongly relate to, will ultimately determine your perception of what is happening. Who and what you identify with is so important. Some of the things that things of this world that we Christians erroneously self-identify with are our race, erroneously identify with as a Christian. By that I mean you put that above your Christian identity. Our race, our culture, our sex, our sexual orientation, our social status, our political views. By self-identify, I mean to get so wrapped up into something until it begins to become your identity. You begin to live out of that place, out of that region, out of whatever that thing is. But if you belong to God, nothing in this world should define you. Nothing. Not your race, not your culture, not your political views. None of that should define who you are. If you belong to Jesus, you are a Christian first. That is your identity much more so than anything else. So if you are a Christian, let me tell you who you are to be or who you should be. Someone who professes belief in Jesus. Does that describe or identify you? A person who believes in Jesus Christ and follows his teachings. You see, you can believe and not follow. You can say you're a Christian and not do what Christians are supposed to do. A person who believes in Jesus Christ and follows his teachings, does that definition describe you? Listen to this one. A person who practices the virtues of Christianity by doing what Christians should do. Does that define you? Can I give you a couple more? How about this one? A person who treats all people, regardless of who they are, what they believe, what they look like, in a kind and generous way. Does that describe you? And finally, being to others who or what Jesus is to you. Showing them the same grace 
showing them the same mercy that God shows you. Does that define you? Your identity in Christ is the most important aspect of your existence. And you must identify with that first. Because any other identity, anything else that you put before that identity, it distorts the real you. It distorts the real you. So I submit to you today, do not see yourself as a black Christian or a white Christian. Do not identify yourself as a Republican Christian, a Democratic Christian, or an independent Christian. For when you put another word in front of the word Christian, you change its meaning. Your Christian identity becomes modified by whatever adjective you put in front of it. So do not change the meaning of your most sacred identity. Now you can say I'm a Christian who's black or a Christian who's white. I'm a Christian who votes independent, Democrat or Republican. You are first and foremost a child of God. And any word used to define your Christianity, it weakens it at its very core. Your identity first is not in your culture, not in your class, not in your background, not even in your history. Your identity first as a child of God is not in the history of your people, good or bad. But your identity first is in your Christ and in your Christian community. How you relate to and identify with people that are different from you should be a reflection of your faith and of your new identity in Christ. Now, I find today's text particularly interesting when it comes to identity. Because these women knew who they were, and they knew what they had a right to based on their identity. So they stood before Moses, before Eleazar, the priest, the leaders of Israel, and they stood before the entire community at the entrance of the tabernacle. In other words, they took their issue to the church. They took it to the church. The church, please hear me. If you don't hear nothing else I say, because some of you probably already tuned me out. But please hear me. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only hope for the issues we face today. We are the only hope because the world can't get it. The world won't get it. The world is incapable of getting it. Since the, since, listen, early, 
Since near early the beginning of time, these issues we deal with today existed. There have always been issues of injustices and inequalities. But the issue is not the issue. The issue is not the issue. We are the issue when we don't respond to the issue as we should. Regardless of where you are concerning the issues. These daughters of Zelophehad said, our father died in the wilderness. The first thing they did was identify who they were to establish the right to present their case to Moses. They knew as children of Israel, as descendants of Abraham, they had as much right to the promised land as anyone else. Our father died in the wilderness, but he was not among those who rebelled in the wilderness. So not only did they know who they were, they also knew who they were not. They say, listen, we're not descendants of those who are, who are rebellious. We're not descendants of those who rebelled against you, against God, and against God's leadership. That's not us. In this presentation of the case to Moses and the leaders of Israel, listen, that's why I found this so amazing. You, you got to get this. Why I, how I saw God begin to connect the dots to those two things I was wrestling with. This presentation of these daughters' case to Moses and the leaders of Israel is the Bible's first instance of an appeal for equal rights for women. The Bible's first instance. Yet very few Christians know about these famous women of the Bible who in effect changed history for Israel. And the greatest power of what they did is found in their wisdom to trust God to see that they would not be denied. Well, we can just get this. If we can just get this. If you feel like you're suffering a wrong for whatever reason, can you trust God with it? Can you trust God to do the right thing? Because I'm telling you, man won't. They believed that God would see that they, their request would not deny. Listen, when it comes to human rights, when it comes to equal rights, and when it comes to civil rights, making petitions to man without God's intervention is a useless exercise. It's useless. These women knew who they were, and they knew who they were not, and they made a petition to God through Moses for equal rights. And what did Moses do? That's where we, the church, listen, 
That's what we the church, we got to be the church. Moses took their petition to the Lord. His actions were as important as that of the women. When someone makes an appeal for equality, the response is just as important as the petition. Criticizing or speaking harshly against people who may feel their rights are being violated, whether they are or not, is probably not the right response as a Christian. Their petition may not be right. Their petition, it may be right. But if the response is not right, the issue will only become worse. And if there is an injustice and we respond in the wrong way, please hear me, we then become promoters of that injustice. The right thing to do as a child of God when we hear someone speak about injustices or inequalities is to take their petition to the Lord, the just one. So, and if you find yourself on the other side of what appears to be an injustice or or an inequality, you have the responsibility to go to God. That is what Moses did. He did not rely, listen to this. Moses did not rely on his education to decide what was right or wrong. Moses did not think about what was best for him or what was best for his people or his tribe. Moses did not fall back on his political persuasion. Because all of those things would not result in justice because there is but one who is just. Instead of responding based on a worldly point of view, Moses went to the Lord and he said, God, is this right? Now let's flip the script. If you feel that you or someone else is being treated unfairly, Go to God. Facebook won't help you. Facebook won't help you. Listen, even talking about it negatively in the confines of your own home won't help you. The only thing that's going to help you is to take your petition to God. Take it to God. You see, only God knows how to move on the heart of man. And only God knows how and when to move the heart of man to align it with his. May I submit to you today that the church has got to be the force to bring about the kind of change this country needs. Now I'm going to step on a few toes here, and I hope that's okay. The church has got to be the force to bring about the kind of change that this country needs. So forget about your political party. Forget about your race. Forget about your culture. 
Forget about your social status. Turning to any of those for the, for the solution will most likely lead you down the wrong path. Instead, turn to God. Ask Jesus to help and pray for his intervention. Ask Jesus if your response is what it should be. Ask Jesus if you're seeing those who say they're being oppressed to show you what he sees. To show you what you need to see. What you need to know. Because if you look through the lens of anything of this world, you will not get a clear picture. The picture will be distorted. The church, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, has to lead this country to a place of health and wholeness concerning these issues because anything that is founded in the ways of this world, anything that is motivated by the sinfulness of man, and we all have it in us, no matter how holy you think you are, and no matter how just you think you are, listen, our viewpoints are tainted by our humanness, it's tainted by our sinful nature, anything else that we rely on other than God will not do it. On our best day, we will mess it up but for God. On our best day. But the church will not be the establisher or the promoter of what is right as long as the pulpits across America remain silent and anemic to these issues. And I'm not talking about us being nothing more and teaching nothing more than being a Christ follower. There are many things that shape our perspective, but the number one shaper must be God. The number one shaper must be God's word. It must be his kingdom virtues. It must be his Holy Spirit. We are the people of God's kingdom, not the people of the kingdoms of this world. Listen, child of God. Stop representing the wrong kingdom. Who are you? Who are you? We have to purpose. Listen, each one of us has to purpose to live with a kingdom of God perspective instead of a kingdoms of this world perspective. Numbers 27 is a continuation of preparing the new generation in Israel to inherit the promised land. And as often is the case to prepare and embrace something for something that is new, we have to often let go of something that is old. Israel had to let go of the old mindset that said only males had the right to inherit the possessions of the land. That was the law. That's what the daughters came against. Wait a minute. Time out. Time out. Our father is dead. But listen, our father, listen, we are his descendants. We should have a right to the land just like everyone else whose fathers are alive. That was their petition. 
That mindset that only males had the right to inherit the possessions was challenged by the daughters of the Zelophehad, and it was granted by God who instructed Moses to give them what they wanted. There are mindsets we need to seek God about to gain his perspective on what we should do about the divisions that are taking place in this country. Divisions that have sadly found their way into the church. The challenges we face today will not be because they cannot be changed by politicians. But it's going to take the church. It's going to take those who fill the pulpits across America leading the way because the church has gotten infected by the same thoughts and ideas that are prevalent in the world. We think like the world and we have begun to act like the world. Even in the confines of your own home, you must guard what you think and guard what you say. When nobody hears you but your family. Because guess what? Whatever poison or divisive word you spew out to your family, it begins to infect them. Whatever poisonous word Whatever divisive words that spews out of your mouth begins to affect your family and begin to shape their ideas. Please hear me. Too many of us have got to give account to the Lord for how we poisoned those he's given us influence over. Whether that's your child, your grandchild, your friend, doesn't matter who it is. We will give an account one day of those things. Listen, this message is not to favor one side over another. It is not to favor one political party over another or one race over another. But this message is aimed at getting all of us to understand, please hear me, that we are different from the world. We're different from the world. And also understand that God is going to hold each one of us responsible for our actions. Or maybe just possibly our inactions. You see, sometimes it's just as bad to not do nothing than to do the wrong thing. Therefore, we must be careful to not allow those who are of this world, those who live and think according to the standards of this world, to influence how we think. We must not allow them to influence how our perspectives are shaped. We must not allow them to influence how we behave towards other people who are different from us. At the risk of being totally misunderstood by some, and I I hope that's not the case, because I think you know my heart. 
I want us to take a step back into time and share the words of a man who risked his life and his reputation as a Christian leader to speak against hatred and racial bigotry. A famous piece of history literature that helped bring about real change during the civil rights movement was penned just 90 miles south of us in Birmingham, Alabama. How many of you are familiar with the letter that was written by Dr. Martin Luther King from his jail cell in Birmingham? How many of you have heard of that letter? Okay. How many of you have read that letter? Now, let me say something, and you black people are going to probably think, this, he's not even a black man. Okay, but let me say something. I didn't even know this letter existed until two years ago. Had no idea. And I found out about it from a white man. Jim Scott, who was vice president of Global Missions at the time for Foursquare. And then, when the events in Charlottesville, Virginia happened, Ted Vail, another white Foursquare leader, who's now our vice president of Global Missions for Foursquare, suggested that in response, in order to try to soften maybe the hearts of some people concerning what was going on, he suggested that this letter be read in response to what happened in Charlottesville. And again, both of these men are very amazing, anointed white leaders, white pastors. They understand the power of the pulpit and how the pulpit should, 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 really should be used to bring about change. Now, what amazed me about this letter and why I want to share just excerpts from it today with you is who the letter was written to. This letter was not written by Dr. King to Governor George Wallace. This letter was not written to Bull Connor. It was not written to any politician or any leader in law enforcement. This letter was written to non-black clergymen who questioned Dr. King's motives and his presence in Birmingham. It was written to men of the cloth who saw him not as an advocator of justice and equality, but as an outsider who came to Birmingham to stir up trouble. Before I read, I want to say this. If your race or political party is perceived by some to be oppressors, please do not take these words as a personal offense. Likewise, if you're on the other side of the fence and you believe your race or your political party is being oppressed, do not feel emboldened by what you hear. These words are intended to neither offend nor embolden but are intended to create in all of us the desire to think and act 
like Jesus. To Bishop C.C.J. Carpenter, to Bishop Joseph A. Durick, to Rabbi Milton L. Grafman, to Bishop Paul Harden, to Bishop Nolan B. Harmon, to the Reverend George M. Murray, to the Reverend Edward V. Romich, to the Reverend Earl Stallings. My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling our physical, our present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom, if ever, do I pause to answer criticism of my work and my ideas. But since I feel that you are men of genuine good goodwill and your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I would like to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. I think I should give the reason for my being in Birmingham since you have been influenced by the argument of outsiders coming in. Several months ago, our local affiliate here in Birmingham invited us to be on call to engage in a nonviolent direct action program if search were deemed necessary. We readily consented, and when the hour came, we lived up to our promises. So I'm here along with, with several members of my staff because we were invited here. I am here because I have basic organizational ties here. Beyond this, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the 8th century prophets left their little villages and carried their thus says the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometown, and just as the Apostle Paul left his little village of Tarsus and carried the message of Jesus Christ to practically every hamlet and city of the Greco-Roman world, I too am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my particular hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I'm cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. So I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what is happening in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught, all of us, in an inescapable network of mutuality that is tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow provincial outside agitator idea. For anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere in this country. You spoke of our activity in Birmingham as extreme. At first, I was rather disappointed that fellow clergymen would see my nonviolent efforts as those of the extremists. But as I continued to think about this matter, I gradually gained a bit of satisfaction from being considered an extremist. Was not Jesus an extremist in love? 
When he said, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice who said, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream? Was not Paul an extremist for the gospel of Christ? He said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was not Martin Luther an extremist when he said, here I stand, I can do none other, so help me God. Was not John Bunyan an extremist? He said, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. Was not Abraham Lincoln an extremist? He said, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. Was not Thomas Jefferson an extremist? He said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or will we be extremists for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or will we be extremists for the cause of, I'm sorry, will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or will we be extremists for the cause of justice? And he writes, there was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period when the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion, but it was the thermostat that transformed the morals of society. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number but big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. But these things but things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the Irish community is consoled by the church's silent and often vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. But I hope the church of the whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even if the church does not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are presently misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. In conclusion, if I've said anything in this letter, 
that is an overstatement of the truth and is indicative of an unreasonable impatience, I beg you, forgive me. If I've said anything in this letter that is an understatement of the truth and is indicative of my having a patience that makes me patient with anything less than brotherhood, I beg God forgive me. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope the circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities and in some not-too-distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all of their scintillating beauty. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King, Jr. Listen, the daughters of Zelophehad manifested a balance between a spirit of confrontation and a spirit of cooperation. The confrontation was illustrated by their attack on injustice, and their cooperation was illustrated by them complying with the elders' decision to marry within their tribe. God defended them when they allowed him to be their deliverer and their provider. These ladies revealed to us a real pathway to overcome inequality while also sustaining a godly spirit. It is important that we hear and respond to what we see out of our Christian identity above any other thing that we may identify with. So I appeal to you today to hear as a Christian individual and not as one who is part of another group. Listen, rely on your individual Christian morals because real change starts with the individual because groups as a whole are much more immoral than individuals are. That's just a fact. God can speak to you best as a child of his than he can as a member of of any other group. Who are you? What will history write of your days on earth? Will it record that you lived by your Christian virtues or will it record that you lived by your worldly identity? Only you can answer that question. Mario, please come and play. No, Angela, Angela, I want Angela to play. Come play. I want you to play your song. You know the song I'm talking about. I'm sorry, Mario. I wanted to play this particular song. And this is how, listen, this is, this is, this is, this is a personal thing. 
So I don't want no one to pray for you. I don't want you praying for nobody else. I want you to think about where you found yourself in this message. I don't want you to do what Moses did. Go to God. Go to God. Go to God. Who are you? What what identifies your existence? The fact that you are a Christian or that you are a black man or a white woman? today's sermon. Thanks again for tuning in to the Restoration Foursquare Church audio podcast. We pray that you have been encouraged and empowered in your journey of following Jesus. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please go to our website, r4sq.org. We pray you have a great week.